Hello and welcome to Mace Talk. I'm Kalen. I'm Willem. And we're here today and... with our friends Bartek and Philip from View Storefront. Hey guys. Hello. Hello. They used to be orange, now they're green. It's a bit of it's a long and winding story. It's kind of both. It's a what? I... <laughs> kind of both. It... It's an interesting statement because Fuel Storefront is very much partially. Well, I mean, you're agnostic, front uh, backend agnostic, but uh, your roots came from Magento. But I guess, Philip, you you never fully like you were never a full Magento guy, so to say. You were you were always agnostic, kind of, right? I mean, I was doing Magento, I was doing a little bit of Magento 1, I was doing a little bit of Magento 2 to just, you know, at least know how painful it is. But yeah, mm -hmm. I, was, I was more like a front-end guy, so I was more focusing on the front-end frameworks. I started with AngularJS and Vue.js, a little bit of React. It was never very deep into any e-commerce platform. I mostly work with APIs of like commerce tools, big commerce and other ones, but when it comes to the digging into the code and, you know, smashing some PHP, it was only Magento. Well, only Magento do commerce. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's what I meant. Like you, you never cut your hands that dirty on Magento code itself. You always had the luck to um, just work on the headless and <laughs> headless part and not touch any of the backend code. Which is, uh, I guess, is different for Botech, isn't it? <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. You've done I a started, lot more Magento stuff. Yeah, I started the Magento one and was there for quite some time. Uh, basically, till I left Snowdog, I was like always kind of related to doing somewhere there because our biggest customer was on the Magento one. So it was like an obvious choice, but. Magento stuff too also hit me and uh, that's the reason I wrote some stuff that was then open sourced mm -hmm. uh, and some of you may know me just because of that. Yeah, what the, you, you... What was the open source stuff that you worked on? Uh, so the first uh, open source team, I guess, was from Snowdog, was the, the, the blank version in the uh, SaaS uh, and mm -hmm. along with that, the front tools. Uh, then we also released yet another team, uh, the, the Alpaca team. Uh, so we did nice. a few things for the community. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people, a lot of agencies still work with uh, Alpaca today, uh, and uh, that was your your birth child, your brain your brain child, uh, so to say. Do you know what what happens to that? to that now, now that you, um, you left Snowdoc, are you, are your former colleagues taking that over? Uh, it's maintained, uh, mm -hmm. but most likely there is not going to be a, a new big release that is changing a lot. They're just keeping, uh, the stores that they build right now, maybe even building, uh, another one on that. Uh, but there will be no revolution, mostly because they also start using Huva, as far as I know. So uh, that nice. that's true. I, yeah. I happen to know that's true. But yeah, <laughs> I I know that they're just starting with the first with the first implementation. So the whole now, question, looking... the whole line of questioning from Willem was bullshit from the beginning. It was a leading, <laughs> it was a leading question from the beginning. So Bartek, is your t are there anybody anybody going to maintain that? Meanwhile, in the back of his head, he knows. He already knows. Say it. Say it. No, say it. no, 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 no. <laughs> say it. <laughs> uh, you think you think I'm some kind of evil? No, uh, no. I felt. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of agencies still still working with it, and uh, I mean, you've. Uh, You've worked on that for such a long time that I think it's stable. Um, uh, anyone can use it. It's free. That's a big plus, uh, which um, I can't say for Huva, but um, uh, I think for us, it enables us to build a whole ecosystem around it. And we invest in, like, we have support where 
people doing the implementations, they can ask us questions and we try to help them as best as we can. And um, I, I would assume that with Alpaca, um, you, you didn't go that far because people weren't you weren't directly paying you for that. So, uh, yeah, but also I, like, uh, the community around Alpaca is not that big. It was mostly our internal thing that few people outside of this topic happened to use. So, uh, if we don't answer something and we don't fix it, no one is going to actually do it. So yeah. even besides licensing stuff and other thing, it was just like a very niche thing. And just because I'm sure, that, though, I'm sure though, if you would have chosen to commercialize Alpaca at some point and you, you would have been paid to build a community, you, you would have succeeded doing that. But that's, that's I... a different focus. Uh, this is an interesting, this is an interesting topic because that leads us into, uh, uh Philippe, um, you built few storefronts from an agency and then detach that from the agency. So few storefront become, became completely separate from your agency. Um, how did that, I have how, to ask, how did that, I have, I have to jump in real quick. I have to jump in. I have yeah. to ask Philip as by far the most famous person currently on the podcast, how has the Forbes cover changed your life? Are you fighting off the girls left and right? What, what's that? Bartek said that he thought you were going to get a cover of the magazine and pay and put it on the back of your wall so that everybody could see it in all your meetings. I, I don't see, I don't see that, but yeah. So it turns out it's not so easy to print, print something that is that big because my goal was basically to remove this couch. So I have you know, the all white canvas and then put the whole cover in there. So every time someone is calling me, I'm just, you know, sitting here. So the fact is visible. Yeah. <laughs> just like yeah. giving them five, 10 seconds to really like, look at this, look at the floor. Appreciate it. And then yeah. going to starting the conversation. So that was my plan. Yeah. Still, still waiting for that. But not, yeah. I know it's going to happen. Yeah. It's a work it's, in progress. That's so funny because John, John, you had this very big uh, like bus stop size, uh, poster from meet Magento UK. He was a speaker there and he took that home. And I think his wife put it on the front door of their house at some point. It was a couple of years ago. It was super funny. Like uh, you, you, you kept seeing pictures, uh, pop up from, from John where, where his, um, mega poster was, um, it was funny. Yeah. Sick. Kind of a meme, meme thingy, but, but, but how. But how, um, how, how is, how, like, I, was it, obviously it must've been exciting to, to get the Forbes thing. How's all that? Um, have you been like, how's, how's everything going? How's everything going in general? Uh, Philip, just overall. You know, like I, I wasn't invited to make chat before, so I considered that. <laughs> <laughs> this is just one of the biggest podcasts on the internet. <laughs> Oh yeah, this is called mage talk. You have too many things. Uh, I know, I know, I know. Too many and they, things. They are all called very similarly. I very similar. I know, I know. It's uh, it's a bit of a problem. Did you hear about commerce hero? <laughs> yeah, I heard, and that was, that actually had a different name. But I also heard that right now on mage talk, you basically have almost the same thing, except it's like a secondary feature. Yeah. And it's for free. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Uh, but Philip, what the hell, man? How's everything going with the U storefront? What's the yeah? Me, let me let me answer all of your questions because you keep asking uh, asking them. So regarding Forbes 13 under 13, of course it changed my life. The girls are texting every day. Like the truth is that there was like one that texted on the Instagram, uh, and it was my girlfriend. So it's not <laughs> like such a huge success. I was invited uh, to a party of first 30 under 30. Uh, it was on Wednesday, two weeks ago. So like every party on Wednesday, it finished, I think around 10. So I was driving four hours to Warsaw to be like three hours on the party. Then I was driving four hours back. So was it worth it? I don't know. We will was see it great. in the future. Yeah. Was the party in Warsaw? 
So it was in Poland, the party? Yes, yes. The party was in Warsaw. Uh, it was in Poland, like in the capital of Poland, for those who don't know. In general, I have to travel to Warsaw a lot recently, either for some flights, because there are no direct flights from Warsaw, and it's just faster to go there, because the flights right now, even from the short routes, they're extremely expensive. But, you know, I'm going by train, and this is extremely, extremely, extremely good way of transportation when you have to work. Honestly, I'm just entering the train, opening my laptop, closing my laptop, and I'm there. So I don't really feel like it's traveling. What else? Oh, that's cool. The company is going good. We did some good hires, like Bartek, for example. Ah. Life is going good. The cats are healthy. I mean, both are yeah. healthy. I have two cats. So one cat is like the primary one, the one we all love. The second one is the one that was for a year in my parents' house, in my girlfriend's parents' house, uh, because we forgot That's to... That's the fallback. Yeah, yeah, the primary, oh primary cat. <laughs> Failover. I mean, yeah, it's the second cat, like very low maintenance. We try to do some things with him just in case the first cat will get lost or, or dies. But in general... You know, it's it's not a primary cat. Let's be honest. <laughs> you are going to check the shoes next morning to see if there is nothing in there. I believe <laughs> you, like just listen to you right now and thinking well, what what what, what uh, evil thing can do for to you. Oh, I hope oh, you understand me really. Like sometimes I feel they do because whenever I'm, you know, on a couch talking some stupid stuff about my cats, they're looking at me and they, they have this look that they know, but they never know if they know, but I, I have they a know. they know. They know anyways. Plotting. And how is your My cat is doing fine. It's right now 14 years old. No diseases or any other signs of being old and really? like running are crazy, looking always as good as uh, as they want. So. I'm watching the Instagram actually. So you are taking your cat for a walk without a leash, right? Yeah, indeed. That's true. My, my cat started, is walking like a dog. I started you being... Your, you take your cat uh, for a walk? Yeah, but like not like, you know kilometers away but i live in like a very uh like super close to, to some trees and other stuff so basically okay. outside of the fence i right have uh area where i can walk with, with them so it's perfectly fine of course like it's still a cat it's, it's not like a do people uh, look at you that, like you're that... a psychopath when you walk by with you yeah, but it's like, a, isn't that the normal look that people look at you? So. <laughs> but do you walk with or without a leash with the cat? Without. Without, without a okay. leash. Oh, yeah. damn. But you, but in the beginning you had a leash, didn't you? Like when it I was tried, younger. but it's oh. super, super hard. So I just learned her to do to, to this without and it, it kind of works. And, and does she fetch it? sticks? <clears throat> Can you throw sticks for her? Does she fetch them? Uh, unfortunately not. <laughs> but there, there are other perks of having a cat that just walk by themselves. Yeah. Like run on some stuff, jump over it and other things. Yeah. It's so, fun. Philip, you said that you started walking your cat too? Yeah, that, you that start... was a mistake. I mean, so we started walking our cat when I think the cat was like five, six months old. It was pretty early, yeah. and right now she's demanding this. So every day we have to walk her. Otherwise, our life is hell, really. She's <laughs> meowing all the time, jumping on different parts of uh, basically everywhere, jumping, screaming, uh, coming to, to me, looking at my eyes, telling, you know, I want to be walked. Basically, yeah. the cat is all over the place. You always hear it. You always hear it jumping somewhere, breaking something, it's it's terrible. So that was a mistake from this perspective, because right now I basically have a cat and the duties of a dog owner. But at the same time, it's pretty nice thing to do. I mean, we started with a, with a, with a leash. Right now, the, we trust cat enough to do it without, and we are not walking by forest. I mean, we live in a city, and there is like this okay. huge 
circle of buildings and in the middle you have something like i don't know how it's called like courtyard or something like this uh, yeah where you basically have uh, trash bins and uh, some things so kids can play and this yeah. is where, I, where we walk the cat like mostly my girlfriend and everyone there already knows her of course every time she meets someone it's like oh you have a cat yes i have a cat <laughs> And right now everyone knows the cat, so when the cat runs away, the people from the windows upstairs, they're even calling my girlfriend saying, she's here, she's here, she's here, really, right? The cat that's is cool. right now. Ah, that's awesome. So the question is, who is, well, like, a, who them know better, you because it was in Forbes or your cat because just is walking outside? Well, definitely the cat, definitely the cat. <laughs> So how, how does that process me? work when you get selected for Forbes? Um, do they, like, how do they find you? Okay. Willem so is trying to figure I... out how to reverse. Willem is trying to figure out how to reverse it. I'm 36. I'm, um, I have no angle here. Just curiosity. Yeah. This, this is the first thing I wanted to say, like you're too old, but if they will ever have <laughs> 100 uh, under 100 then you can uh, you can apply and honestly it's not hard i think probably in every country it's a little bit different or the european one or the world one is a little bit different but in our case last year they invited me and i didn't get there mm -hmm. this year i sent it on myself and i got there so the first rule is don't uh, if they invite you just pass there will be next year and then apply just sent what you did and that was it. I just sent a document and they replied and that was the whole process. So this is a local, so this is, uh, was this Europe or, or Poland? Uh, it is Poland, it is for Poland. Uh -huh. So every, this is why I think like it could be a little bit different for different countries. And even when I was talking with the guy that is in charge of this, he said that it looks a little bit different elsewhere. For example, in Poland, until this year, you were actually able to be there year after year. And there was one person that was there for six years in a row. So it's That's a little bit like Magento, but less, uh, yeah. <laughs> less interesting. Less interesting. <laughs> Alumni. That's so good. Yeah. That's funny. Um, Cool. So, so can we go back to my initial question now, Kaden? Or yes, yes, or... sir. We can do it. Let's <laughs> let's go back to. It. I don't remember what it was, but we can go back to it. It was the journey from Divanti. So that's yes. the um, <clears throat> that's the the agency that uh, Philip came from. Um, are you completely out of Divanti now, uh, Philip? Yeah. Okay. So mm -hmm. you're the. Um... I mean. Like... So if... One of, one of the goals that we had when we were creating a separate entity was to don't have Divante on the cap table to not be related to Divante more than to any other partner agency, because we knew that it is essential for a healthy partner ecosystem. Like no one would really like to go full into the storefront if they will know that officially or unofficially they are supporting the competitor, right? So mm -hmm. this is why it also took a lot of time because I think together with Bart, uh, our first co-founder that with Patrick we met uh, in January and we told ourselves, okay, so we'll have a tariff sheet on the table and a separate entity in March. It happened in November. And wow. you know, during, during that time, we were very close to quit. I mean, it's not easy. It's not easy to spin off the company from other company that already have a lot of shareholders. They all have different interests and honestly, like, you know, something like this storefront is the last thing they would care about. Uh, they have a lot of other stuff and still you have to reach out to like a C-level people, etc. persuade them to give you like a specific amount of shares, uh, why it's good for the company, why they should actually give it away, etc. etc. It's It's a long process. And especially when the company that is a shareholder is not very fluent, let's call it like this in the startup world or knowledgeable, it's like, you know, breaking, breaking the stone really, because you have to explain a lot of things. You have to do a lot of persuasion and you have to do for all of them, but it happened. It happened because Bart and Patrick, they really put a lot of sweat into this. 
And finally, in November, we signed the paper. So the same day we actually were uh, accepted to Y Combinator. So it was a pretty good day. Though I don't remember the exact date. I think it was 10th of November, like one of the last days of November. So yeah. How was Y Combinator? Uh, sorry, Will. And this is one of the downsides of doing a multi-person podcast is it's virtually impossible to get your questioning straight. It's a bit of a nightmare. But um, so apologies in advance. But um, but Phil, how was how was Y Combinator for you? Well, the truth is, we were in, I think in the first remote batch during COVID. So we didn't have this amazing experience of going to Silicon Valley, uh, okay. um, getting drunk with all of them, you know, like having a drink with Michael Siebel. We didn't have that. It was okay. all online. I think they did everything they could to actually have more or less the same experience. So there was a lot of networking, like they split us into groups to make sure that, you know, we are, we are still talking with each other and we know each other. The groups were mixing from time to time. So I, I think they did what they could, but it was not like a full Y Combinator experience. Mm -hmm. Also, what I think is that Y Combinator is the best for the like very, very, very early stage startups. At that time, we had some kind of a business model. We already had customers. Uh, mm -hmm. We already had pretty good traction. And when we were talking with most of the startups in our batch, they didn't have that. They were either having the first customers or thinking about how to monetize, etc. And the content, because they, they had like three months of lectures, like all the time, really, like every mm -hmm. day you had, to, you had to spend some time for this. If you didn't, mm -hmm. you had recordings, but they were teaching you everything about running a startup, running marketing, doing QEs. <clears throat> I would call it like a very good startup bootcamp, but at the mm -hmm. same time, a lot of things that they taught there, we were not able to relate because we were kind of past that period already. But still, uh, so, I think it's great. So they... So they invest in your company and then they give you coaching and they demand some stuff from you to work on certain aspects of your business plan or and they help you with the marketing and stuff you say. So are they still are they still uh, are they still involved now or is that a temporary thing that you already have passed you? They are still involved. I mean they are not with uh, me doing something. So they are not actively involved and or proactively involved, but whenever we need something, we know that we can count on the Y Combinator uh, network and, you know, we're just coming to them, asking questions. Sometimes they're making us an intro, sometimes they're just ask, uh, answering directly. So it's useful. It's really useful. And I think, you know, it's probably going to be useful on all the stages, though it's mostly useful on, on this very early stage when you don't know anyone, you don't have your own network of advisors, etc. This mm -hmm. is where Y Combinator is really priceless. And this is where you can like really, really save a lot of time on doing this sort of stuff. If I would be a first time founder, I would definitely, I mean, I was a first time founder and I still are, but as a first time founder, I found it super valuable because you're alone in the dark when you're running your first company, you have no idea what to do. You have no idea what is good, what is bad, what behavior is expected, what behavior is not expected, how, you know, what, what is the playbook for different departments. So this is what you're kind of learning during Quiet Combinator. Mm -hmm. And I found it super interesting, super useful. I did not remember everything, but even now, like these days, I'm sometimes coming back to some of the things they said, and right now I can relate to them. So it's not only about the first stage. It's also about managing people. It's also about making tough choices, etc. Did you meet some cool people, like uh, as far as other in in the network, like in the found in just in the founder network? Did you connect with other peers and stuff like that? So this is something that Patrick is doing more often. Like we didn't have a chance to directly you know, connect with the coolest folks in the Y Combinator world. But, you know, we had meetings with RBB founders. We had meetings with Michael Siebel. Uh, so we kind of scratched that surface. But again, it mm -hmm. was a remote track. And yeah, that's like yeah, yeah. pull into running a company because it was not, you know, it wasn't like we took 
three months off from running a company and right now we're right. in the new marketing mode. We're still starting everything right. and it was just after our fundraising. So networking, I, I would say, was the last thing we were thinking about at that time. Right, so that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So it wasn't, it very much wasn't the classic Y Combinator experience on basically every, every level. Um, yeah, that's cool, man. That's so impressive. Yeah, that's, that's super cool, man, that you guys got into that. Um, uh, how long, how long ago was it that, uh, that they, that they got involved? How long the decision making process was for them? No, when well, you said it happened in November with the uh, Y Combinator, what, what year was that? Uh, so two years ago? 2021, if I remember, yes. And we were in winter, winter 2021, but... And, um, <clears throat> and you, you, you grew quite a bit over the past, since then, I think, right? How, how many people are you now? So when we are joining Y Combinator, there was basically a founding team, so three founders plus one person doing marketing and all the marketing related things, one person, for two people for software development. So there were six of us, right now there is a little bit more than 100 after what? a little bit less than two years. So it's pretty big, it's, it's pretty awesome. big. And of course, it's extremely challenging. Like I also don't think that, you know, you should think about the greatness of the company from the perspective of how many people are there because we're a startup we got three tons of money and you can literally be even 500 right now but right that's not what what counts like ultimately the revenue the ability to close another round this is what counts so yeah it can be easy to focus on the head count as one of the main signals but that can be that can be more or less meaningful. I mean, the moment you hired Bartek, automatically that became less meaningful. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> because he's a 10 time programmer, right? And he only counts right. for one officially. That's right. That's, one. That's right. <laughs> this was a hidden compliment. Yeah, Except that I'm not coding at all. But we were hired, like we hired Bartek, we had no idea he's 10x, so we kind of like lowered his salary and told him, can you be just 5x? So right now Bartek is not coding, he's sparing the remaining 5x for something else. Uh, just trolling mainly and wasting <laughs> time. Yeah. You do have a lot of time to spend on Twitter, I, I must, and Slack. <laughs> But it's good. <laughs> it's nice Don't the speed in which <clears throat> the speed in which us four. Go, well, Kalen is the slowest one because he disables <laughs> notifications. But as soon as Kalen posts something that we want to respond to, it's we within five time. minutes that we're all free. <laughs> we all free jump in. I think that I think Philip had mentioned that you do a Pomodoro. Um, workflow where you'll go into the zone for like an hour at a time and then you'll check Twitter when you come out. Um, I had done some, uh, I have experimented with different things like that over, you know, over the, over the years. I think that's a good, um, is that, does that work pretty well for you, Philip? Yes. Honestly, I had a lot of issues with productivity when I started to become, when I started to be a CTO, because we could imagine that my calendar very soon became full of meetings and I really, mm -hmm. really didn't have any, any focus time. So that this, those short periods, when I had this time, I was, also, I was using Pomodoro because otherwise there will be 20 things that will come at me and I will try to focus on everything and I would focus on nothing because I'll be responding, etc. So yeah. at the very early days, it helped me a lot to actually, because how I, how I work with Pomodoro is I don't have like 40 minutes focus, 20 minutes of break or something like yeah. that. I have 40 minutes focus, 20 minutes of responding on Slack, Twitters, all of others, and then coming back to the zone for 40 minutes and it works very well. Right yep. now, I'm a little bit further from the engineering tasks, which also fit a lot of my calendar. So I would say right now I'm working like a regular person that can work for like four or five hours straight without having to jump in a, into a call. And right now it's even more effective. But what I learned is that you can't really do Pomodoro for a very long time. 
I mean, it's, I'm doing breaks. I'm doing it for like two, three weeks. Then I'm doing a break, trying to, you know, work normally. Whenever I see that I'm actually starting to procrastinate a little bit more because it kind of happens naturally, then yeah. I'm, you know, coming back to the Pomodoro training my, uh, mind again and trying to do exactly yeah. the same thing with Pomodoro. And it's never ending yeah. cycle, you know, yeah. being work. Yeah. A never ending cycle of being what? Of being worse because I'm finishing the Pomodoro oh. <laughs> right yeah. now, you know, everything is on the right track. I will be able to focus. I will be super productive. The things get worse. I'm coming yeah. back to Pomodoro. Yeah. Yeah. Right it's on. like, it's like, yeah, it's like those things definitely change over time and you'll try different things and some you'll have periods of being hyper productive and then you'll find yourself getting distracted and then you'll have to try something else and then um it kind of is is constantly evolving um but what do you um philip what are you what are you spending your time on these days um are you do you, you mentioned you're doing you're less connected to engineering tasks and stuff yeah so like you know the role of a founder is basically usually it depends of course like what is also your title but i would i would say if you're a founder like one of your jobs is being a founder and being a founder is like jumping into different parts of, you know, your company and seeing where things don't work or where people maybe need a little bit of push or maybe they even need a little bit of guidance or actually involvement of a founder, which also matters a lot for the people. Uh, and this is what I do as a founder, but I'm also working right now on the community team and my job for the next quarter is basically to unpack bottom-up approach. Uh, because when you have an open source company and one of the things that are actually one of the main reasons why you're doing this as open source is so-called bottom-up approach. So bottom-up approach works in a way where you have top-down approach for the people from the top of the company. Uh, they're making uh, choices, they're making business decisions and everyone at the bottom right. has to follow. Right. But you also have right. bottom-up approach where someone from the engineering team uh, someone from the architecture team is actually bringing this storefront to the table when they are evaluating like what they want to use. Mm -hmm. And those people also have a high influence on, on those choices. So my goal right now is to make sure that, first of all, they have all around positive experience when they're interacting with our open source packages, with our open source repositories, when they are on Discord, mm -hmm. and give them mm -hmm. a little bit of weapons to actually persuade the people that have this decision-making uh, power in the company to use this storefront. Because those people usually, and I think it's very common for technical people because I also had that issues. They think a lot about like what, what they can do with this tool, uh, what possibilities it could bring, but they don't think that much about why, like what is the biggest purpose, what is the gain, right. et cetera. Right. Uh, so my goal is to help those people, to give them some pitch decks that they can use, to write a page on our documentation called Convince Your Boss, which will give them good arguments to actually win this fight, uh, nice. and think a little bit from the business perspective, not from the technological perspective. Because if you think, yeah, we can make things faster and it has this, this, and this feature, and we'll be doing less technical debt, etc., it's like, try to to any business-minded person things like that and they won't understand the thing and unfortunately right. this is exactly how the business and tech conversation happen in most of the companies and in most of the mm -hmm. environments like they speak two different languages and right, right now i moved from engineering to go to markets team i can i can call it like that mm -hmm. and the truth is i learned a lot i really learned a lot and my mind is even thinking a little bit differently because I was so focused on the initiatives and not so much on maybe not the outcomes, but the underlying, uh, motivation for that, like going really deep into like why we're doing this, not because other people have this and this is a good feature, like, you know, mm -hmm. the go to market team doesn't think this way. They think it should be differently. And right now my mm -hmm. perspective is also broader. So I'm kind of trying to leverage this experience, think from the perspective mm -hmm. of the developer before and you know, use this knowledge to actually arm our contributors and community members with, with this knowledge and teach them how That's to cool. talk with the business personas. That's really cool. What departments do you have in your company? So I've already heard 
Mm-hmm. Some now. Well, uh, how are those hundred people divided? Like, what kind of teams? How, how did you build up? And what 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 team is Bartek on? A trolling team. Bartek is in is in is in HR right now. No, just kidding. Like, so we have this engineering and product team right now. They are working together, and they we we are right now making this differentiation. We didn't have that before. So before we just had engineering team, and engineering team was basically the team that took care of the community staff, of the product staff, of the engineering staff. Right now we are dividing this a little bit. So we have product and engineering team, and the product and engineering are divided. Uh, we have go to market team and under go to market team you have like customer success you have uh, community also community used to be part of the engineering team but what we notice is that if this is part of the engineering team there's no way they're going to collaborate with anyone from go to market because the community team is naturally closer to the developers always and it's creating some kind of a silo so we move this team to the go to market and honestly in most of the organizations that I read about, it is under some kind of like a marketing team. So we have this go to market and we also have uh, operations and operations is like everything else like HR, BI, this sort of stuff. And it worked pretty well. It worked pretty well. Probably it will work for some time, but the, you know, organizations are changing and will be probably more and more granular. Right now we are kind of switching from the organization of generalists to the organization of specialists. And it is also reflected uh, in the organization chart. And how remote is everyone? Do you like, have a main office, right? No, I mean, we have the main office, no, no. It's like a, a co-working space and we have one room with two chairs. So like, if you happen to be in Warsaw, feel invited, but in general, everyone feel work totally remotely. So we were remote first from the first day. We kind of didn't have a choice because it was during COVID and we just stayed like this. And I think that was good. That was very good because a lot of companies, when they're starting, they're thinking, okay, right now we need an office, they're renting the flat, etc. We didn't even have, you know, to choose that because it was COVID. There was no point in having mm-hmm. it. So we had to learn how to work remotely from the day one. There was no other choice and it stayed like this. Right now it's, it's kind of like a perk. But also we knew that if we want to create a global startup, we need to hire a lot of people globally. And it's very hard to do all of that in the Polish markets, especially when you want to be like international company, you need people from sales, but also from other departments to to not be all in one country. Time zones. Yeah, that's a little bit challenging, but we try to, you know, we try to have teams that are from the same time zone if possible and teams that are from mixed time zones. Like when we have people from different time zones, kind of try to put them in the, in the same team if that's possible. Uh, but it is challenging, especially that, you know, it's, we're not async first. We try to, but it's, it's a long, 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 long way. And sometimes this asynchronous communication is crucial. And mm-hmm. not for everyone it works. Like we have some team leaders that clearly say that we don't want people from other time zones, or we even have team leaders that clearly say you don't want people from other uh, countries because having to speak English during our team meetings, it makes communication harder. And in general, you know, we're in favor of such requests. The ASIC first okay. thing is interesting because I tend to Uh, sometimes assume remote companies are super async. And I was even chatting a little bit with with the um, Mage OS team about meeting structure and async versus synchronous meetings and stuff like that. And um, I mean, I think that that's like probably a general best practice. but, uh, you know, I mean, it's non-trivial to actually do it, like, uh, especially with a certain size team and everything like that. Um, There's a Bartek, difference, though. You, yeah. <clears throat> if, you, if you have regular meetings and you work together, you know all of the context of each other's work, and you have, like, you know if someone writes you a message, you more or less know what they mean. If you 
if it's outside of your business context, so with the meetings of MajorOS, these are people all from different companies that don't see each other in person often, don't have meetings outside of the one that we plan every week or every two weeks. And then writing out messages takes so much longer than just having a 30 minute phone call, because I can tell you, I can tell you stuff in 30 minutes that would take me longer than a day to write out. Um, because then I would think about, okay, so how does this come across? If I, if I write, oh, I shouldn't write this like this because he will probably think I'm angry. Like, and if I talk to you and I, and I tell it to you with a smile and a certain tone in my voice, my, my voice, you don't need to think about how I mean something, you know, I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I like, I agree. And I think <laughs> reasons are, are the same reasons for every group ever that has preferred meetings and has been used to meetings and had said asynchronous won't work because of those reasons. And, um, I think that, um, and, and without getting in too much into the, the mage OS stuff that we were talking about in Slack privately, this, this goes to the Magento association stuff as well. I see it as the same thing where they're like, Hey, let's uh, great idea. Let's talk about that in our next meeting in four weeks. And it's like, guys, let's like, what exactly do you guys need for this website thing? Write it down somewhere and let's, you know, get it. So I see that as another instance like I, of the same mindset. And I, and, and I know there's reasons for it and meetings can be good, obviously. I mean, this is a meeting. We're doing a meeting right now. But um, I don't know. I, just, I think uh, when, you're, when you're seeking alignment then a phone call is much quicker. Like you can decide on next steps and then in between meetings, you work the stuff out. But just if you don't have that alignment yet, it takes so much time to write out messages and find the alignment that way. Um, so it doesn't ideally also with the association, people would be working a lot in between meetings. So it's not just the meetings, but the meetings are crucial just to to get a common understanding within the group. And that's, that takes so much more time and energy if you do it asynchronously. It just occurred to me that uh, we have not brought up yet the, the topic for the episode, which is the mock alliance, uh, which, makes, <laughs> which I think we're talking about associations and stuff like that. But Philip, you were recently added to the, the, the mock alliance. How's that? How's that going? And, 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 and maybe I don't understand it too well, but, um, is that been, um, how's all, how's all that going for you? Um, this is another question I was waiting for, but I'm glad that you didn't ask that yet. So, <laughs> I mean, I was part of Mahalayas. I was part of Mahalayas for a very long time because we surfant was one of 10 or 11 companies that was actually like a founding members of Mahalayas. We're not the ones okay. founding it, but we were right. there at the moment of announcing it. Right. Uh, and right now I was just invited to the Tech Council and in the Tech Council, we have around 50, 60 people. So that's a lot, really, that's a lot. Even though right now they're making some changes. So right now they're making kind of like a tiers in the council. So there are people who want to be much more involved, spend like two, three hours a week, and they are kind of in the core team. And you have other people that just want to be stay, stay updated, that want to be able to express their opinion on some strategic things, but they don't have time to commit two, three hours a week to actually work on Mahalayas. Mm -hmm. I plan to be the core team member because mm -hmm. What I, what I see in general, and it's not only about Mac, it's not only about headless, but in general, in, a, in our space, like web development space, it is very much hype driven. So there is a lot of those buzzwords that we are using to actually call the next big thing, which are either like a subset of the previous big thing or exactly the same thing, but a little bit renamed. Yeah. Don't and mention composable in commerce in front of Willem. He'll start, he'll start twitching. That's the C in Mach, right? <laughs> I was just thinking, uh, Mach stands for it's monolithic not... application. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, commerce. exactly. Monolithic applications, carefully. Uh, I don't know. 
handpicked. So is it uh, <laughs> micro architecture? No, my, micro micro services, API based, composable, right. composable, and headless. Not composable. It's actually cloud native. Oh, right, 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 right. right. So composable goes uh, under headless because headless is kind of like a broader term, and composable right. is basically okay. So we have a headless store, but you also have shit tons of different services that you have to somehow glue together. Right. So this is this is when you think composable. You think composable when at the back of your head you thought, oh shit, there's so much of those services I can plug them into the front end. So this is where you have a composable stack, like the easiest way to. I have a question that I have a question. Yeah, I have a question that might be interesting for you, for uh, Willem and and Philip to chime in on, the compo and especially Philip from the perspective of things being buzzwordy. So composable commerce, right? Like I talked to, I think Willem and I talked about this on a podcast. He said, "Listen, Magento's been composable forever." When you think about from the perspective of you're going to plug in a shipper HQ for your shipping, you're going to plug in da 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 different things, uh, um, different SaaS uh, options. Maybe you're going to plug in a checkout, whatever. Um, whereas from the kind of more pure composable commerce perspective, I'd imagine it's a little different, right? But I kind of can see his argument. Um, so how, I guess the way I would phrase the question is, Philip, how would you? How is What's an example of composability that the Willem's definition of plugging SaaS into Magento doesn't fit? Um, you know, does that does that question make sense? I'm trying to kind of get at what is the what are we talking about? What exactly is composable is not composable? Okay, so this this may sound like. Uh, I'm very good at setting what my company is doing, but yes, monolith can also be composable. And this is what we are almost talking for a lot, lot of times, really. So I think we have, we have some problems in our industry. So when we have a word like composable or headless, and they are kind of a new waves that are highlighting some specific way of building software, a lot yeah. of people try to attribute a monopoly to this particular way of building software. To this yeah. new term and this is the problem because a lot of things can be composable lego can be composable like uh, monolith can be composable a headless application can also be composable and in general when we mean composable we mean extreme composable like the extrema where you have a lot of services you need a specific orchestration layer but you also want to decouple but it doesn't mean that you can compose in monolith that you can compose in any other architecture you can really it's not a problem at all. The same way, like when you have a Magento store, you can really talk to the APIs of different platforms. You don't have to manually add any kind of like PHP rendering or this right. sort of stuff and any PHP client for that, right? It's right. only about like the extreme uh, use case and like the, this perfect use case. And it's not about having monopoly on this particular feature. It's more about being the best at this particular thing. So composable is right. great when you have, you know, a lot of services, when you need a lot of services because your business is so big that a small changes in the workflow or small changes on the front end, they will make a huge difference when it's come to the revenue. This is where you need that. But at the same time, you could also have your Magento store. You can plug in five or six or seven different APIs and you're still composing, but this is just not the main right reason why you chose Magento or why you chose Composable. You're choosing Composable to have this flexibility to know that your biggest pain point would be gluing all of those things. This is where, when you're choosing them, when you're, you know, your biggest pain point would be somewhere else, you would probably choose a monolith. Mm -hmm. I think the, um, the difference is if you as a company decide to go the Mach way, or if you really, if you approach your architecture from composable standpoint, you will end up with something different than probably something different than a monolith that has a lot of services plugged into it. Because if you're going the Mach way, then that's woven through your whole, your whole business. And, and it's not just your e-commerce layer, but it's throughout the whole business. And, you try to have all of your systems work independently. Um, and uh, yeah, you need a glue to, to put that together. And, and Magento can be that glue 
to put things together. Um, but it could still be that all of your services are composable. It's just the only difference is that if you would use Magento for that in a monolithic way, that your front end might not be headless. Um, so it could or could not be headless. So um, it's more like the general approach from a, as a, as a business pers perspective, uh, you could be composable minded and work that all the way through your, your, your business or not, but the monolith still fits into that ideology, but perhaps headless is set more sensible if your company is also separating your development, for example. So if, if you have a development uh, team that likes to work with JavaScript and are super effective in, in those technologies, you can separate them out from the guys that are doing the backend work. You could outsource the backend work and do the front-end work in-house or whatever. Um, but yeah, for, for every argument you give, I, I'm always almost tempted to make the counter-argument like you could probably still also do that with Magento. You could have a front-end team working on Magento separate from the front the back-end team. Um, so this, continue, this discussion can continue on endlessly. Um, but... Um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting uh, movement in the market, the the, the thing. But I think I would add one thing that I believe is true in most cases: the composable with the headless in the Mach way is usually that anywhere in your architecture you don't have a single point of failure like sometimes some service that is stateless and is gluing. <laughs> but middlewares are usually, but you make middlewares are usually not stateless, not, not stateful. They're just passing some, some network. So the chances that someone, something goes south in that area are relatively low because it's just like a simple, a, a bit more smarter proxies. Yeah. Like the, the like, the non-composable way, I would call it like a very platform-centric and the e-commerce platform is your center of the universe. If this goes down, like nothing would work. Well, in composable, you, theoretically, you can put, you know, a house monkeys algorithm and just kill some of the services and just some of the features will not work. So if your shipping provider goes down, Headless still works? If your pricing, if your pricing system if you're of course it depends <laughs> how well designed it is but if, if that's just a full bike or something actually i, I have yeah. a question on that because the shipping something is the shipping thing is something i was curious about to it as well as from a question of composability are people actually swapping out or putting in fallback uh providers for things like shipping like do you um because that's where I think to myself, well, whether you're monolith or composable, if you're relying on one shipping thing and shipping goes down, you're kind of screwed. But do you guys see it where people will have a fallback shipping provider if, if, if one shipping provider API goes down or is that still? Uh, sort of because it's just probably related to writing some agreements and paying stuff. So yeah. you are usually tied to right. some service that is I never... for you, but also it very depends on the region. I believe in Europe is not that common that shipping provider is actually doing a lot mm -hmm. because like if you are shipping within a single country at a single rate, mm -hmm. uh, you don't need to check the addresses and other stuff. Right. The billing is usually like static thing. So even right. if the provider goes down, it's on your e-commerce side that actually can retry and eventually make this shipping happen. Right. So, I of course, depends. Like the, the truth is I never saw that personally, and I also don't see any reason to do that. Be just because the shipping providers are used generally stable enough that it's not a, it's not enough of a priority. I mean, for all, almost, or I think every enterprise level agreement that you're signing, you have some decent level of SLA, SLA and I don't right. think anyone in the enterprise world will buy anything that doesn't have like at least three nines. Yeah, Although, that makes sense. I get, you know, yeah. Fishing, etc. like there's literally no way that it will break yeah. so much. That makes that sense. Your, your, your store will be unusable. Yeah, that makes I've sense. I've seen FedEx go down. The, yeah, I, I was just say like, 
the 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 sa and then if FedEx goes down sometimes the, obviously the shipping provider can wrap some logic around that and stuff like that but and these SaaS companies are getting more and more mature to the point where they're offering those terms and those uptime guarantees and stuff like that I guess the thing I I I struggle to wrap my head around is if we're talking about composability we're talking about swap it in swap it out change it whatever if the if the SaaS that you're composing or plugging in if you're never I mean, if you're not, if it's not easy to change that because of the terms you have, because you're paying for it, because your team is relying on the interface and the functionality of that SaaS, then what, what do we mean when we say that you can easily swap them in and out if in practice you're not going to, like, you're not going to switch out Clavio very often, you're, very often, you're not going to switch out, you know, like, that's the thing I'm trying to wrap my head around, uh, Philip, I'm curious. Yeah, I would say that different parts are designed to be to be changed easier than shipping payments and other stuff because that's kind of the foundation of the business. What okay. you are usually changing is the technical stuff, more related to what, for example, administration is doing. So, for example, you are going to change the. CMS platform to something different because have the feature that, for example, marketing team might need. And mm -hmm. in that scenario, it's most likely easier to do than putting it outside of the monolith. Yes, exactly. So you have a little bit or a much less tight coupling. And when you're switching e-commerce, for example, e-commerce, the responsibilities are not as wide as before. So it's not like your front end, whole back end and basically center of the universe. Usually it's just some kind of a skeleton that is used to plug in some other third party services, or sometimes it's only about making an order or something like that. Right. So that's the, beauty. That that, that's the beauty of this composability. But at the same time, you know, every vendor sooner or later, they will be trying to lock into their ecosystem. They will try to enforce a vendor locking. So there is also right. a lot of vendors that <laughs> are actually kind of like gluing all the other things, but they have things like internal fields that they are adding to the data formats for the integration. This is some kind of a tight coupling already right now, but it's mm -hmm. still, I would say, of course, it really depends on the product, but it's still much less than we're used to with monoliths. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a funny dynamic with all these SaaS companies because they're becoming more and more mature. They're becoming bigger, right? Economically, they're becoming stronger. They're building out their own partner ecosystems. I mean, you look at the Clavio partner ecosystem, right? They've got more and more uh, entrenched interest and vendor lock-in uh, because essentially they're doing a good job at building their business. So, so that it's funny because we're talking, you're talking about composability, which essentially means how easy is it to change one vendor for another, where the vendors are becoming more and more entrenched just by the nature of the fact they're doing a good job as a vendor. So it's an interesting kind of like tension. But you know, Caleb, like you could have composability and vendor locking at the same time. It's not like the only purpose of composable is not that you're not, not locked into uh, an ecosystem of a particular vendor. It's more about flexibility to change things, sometimes to the things mm -hmm. for, uh, from the same vendor, sometimes not, to work on them parallelly, etc. right? So we see that a lot of companies and one of them is slowly becoming even commerce tools that they have this headless let's call it, uh, or API first backend. And then they're also buying a bunch of services that integrate mm -hmm. with them away. well. So they have their own uh, payment gateway. They have their own CMS, etc. They're still API first, but you're plugging mm -hmm. in are basically still services from the same vendor. And I think mm -hmm. this is all right. This is all right. As long as you have this flexibility to actually change different parts of your system. You're muted, Philip. Oh yeah, you're muted, sorry. <laughs> oh no, when, when that happened? You're back, just you're a back. Second. <laughs> yeah, just, just a second. Okay, because imagine you have, uh, you have so many different vendors, you are in a space that is completely new, so there are no vendors rising, some of them are bankrupting, some of them are getting acquired. It's a risky space to be, and some of the pricings they could change, some of the terms and conditions they could change, some products could change. You really need this flexibility in the, the new space. 
it's much, much safer actually to invest into something like this and know that, oh, if I made this decision wrong, it's not going to cost me rewriting everything. I also like to, you know, to, to think about this from this perspective because there, there are always a lot of benefits with uh, being early adopter or right now even not an early adopter, but in general in buying into a new technology. But at the same time, one of the risks is that it's so changing uh, that every decision that you make should be more or less reversible. Mm -hmm. So I'm... It's fine. Yeah, go ahead, Will. Go ahead. Yeah, just as we, we talked about this before, uh, Philip and I, um, that um, the, the goal of, of Composable is the inter interchangeability of systems, but in practice with with any system, you see that data is so specific to the implementation that swapping it out directly is a really big challenge. And unless you have a normalized data set, so you would say any external CMS has these attributes and they are post title, category, you know, go on and on. And you have all of that defined and all of those content systems need to follow that data set only then you can just swap between systems. But now if you, the, the challenge is migrating your data from, from one CMS to the other, and then re-implementing the glue, as you call it with Composable, like you need to redo the, the integration or the, 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 the data mapping between your third-party CMS and, uh, and your own implementation. So that's still, I think that's the promise of Composable. But that's still today um, as big of a challenge as with with the monolith. Like, you need to rewrite stuff. You need to re-implement if you want to swap out one system, and it's kind of a dream. I I, I said earlier, like, um, if you've ever integrated an ERP system with a commerce system, um, and you try to um, make that as global that it can be reused, you will find out that it's it's nearly impossible to make a universal adapter for a ERP because everyone has different products, different data sets, different integrations. And uh, that, that's just like, that takes months and months and months to integrate usually, especially at that size where, where Composable is targeting. So, um, and most likely it will never happen. It's really yeah. hard to define something like unified data model that will be the same for Shopify and SAP. For example, it's like and the spectrum think... is so wide that like the platform exists because they're different. They're not like doing all of the same. And that, that's where, where, where the difference come from. Mm -hmm. and we tried that. We really tried that. We tried that with Vistore front one. We are trying to adjust everything into like one common format, the magento format. It didn't work. With Vistore front two, we initially tried to just have some kind of like a more free abstract format. It also didn't work with uh, a product that Bartek is doing. We also tried, and as far as I know, it also didn't work. And but I also don't think like this universality of having plug and play systems is what Composable is about. We don't aim to have this plug and play experience. That does aim for a lighter coupling, and also mm -hmm. you know when when you're talking about coupling, you want to be coupled with the things that are actually more universal, like front end, like the orchestration layer. You know, their features, they probably won't change that much and they are pretty universal, while all the backend services that have a very nuanced features and the very nuanced behavior pricing, etc. this is something that you want to have a little bit more decoupled. So it's also about moving this epicenter of your software from the e-commerce platform to the orchestration layer and the front end. Seems like uh, the middleware, these middleware layers I keep hearing about are uh, maybe going to wrap these things up. Like if you have a middleware that can that can know that can um, you know, like the vendors, the vendors are never going to are, are never going to um, uh, all agree on universal data uh, models. But I think the middlewares can do that themselves. And then as the different middlewares become more popular and widely adopted, they'll have more and more incentive to, to go in and map data fields uh, intelligently to some kind of a standard. Um, 
I, I still don't think I understood the example, Philip, that you were giving where you were saying you can have vendor lock-in and composability at the same time. Um, I, I know you mentioned Commerce Tools and how they're acquiring services to plug in, but um, could, you, could you explain that to me one more time, like I'm five? How can you have vendor lock-in and composability? I think the easiest way would be to say, okay, so here you have orchestration layer, here you have all of our services, and we're integrated with all of those services. If you want to use something else, you can do this, but you have to manually integrate and you have to adjust into our own formats. And this is exactly what SAP Spartacus is doing, for example. I was in the core team of SAP Spartacus for, I think, six months. Uh, I was laying like foundations for this project together with a lot of other amazing engineers. And one of the things that they are doing is actually, yes, you have had this right now, it's fully composable, but at the same time, when you want to integrate anything that is not from SAP, you have to integrate it in a way that fits into this SAP API. So this uh... is the easiest example I can give you. Okay, so you're still locked into SAP or you're still locked into Commerce Tools uh, as a as a base, but then you can plug, you can use some of their services for specific services, or you can use other other vendors. It's um, more, yes, exactly. It's just about making our services so easy to use that it's a sin not to do this and using uh, other services as hard as possible. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. All right, I appreciate you explaining that. <laughs> um, nice. Nice. Surprise, Will. I would like to go on for another hour because I think still a lot of interesting things we could talk about, but I kind of had a hard cut off 15 minutes ago. <laughs> and we're Fair beyond. Enough. <laughs> Fair enough. My friend is having birthday and we are going for a dinner and it's happening in 45 minutes. So Nice. Nice. Well, thanks so much, guys. This was, this was a blast. I'm sure Bartek has a date, a date or two to get to as well. A couple, a couple of his girlfriends. But um, I, I'm thanks, uh... the girlfriends that Philip don't want to have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, thanks everybody for, <laughs> thanks everybody for tuning in, and uh, we will see you next week. Make sure to check out Philip. And Bartek on the socials, we'll, we'll plug we'll plug their stuff in. Amazing! Thanks, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for listening. Guys. Bye bye. Thanks for bye bye. bye. This is definitely bye -bye. the brightest moment of my career.